The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and today my guest is Hilary Arkhead. We'll be talking about Islamophobia and the European counter-jihad movement, its entwinement with state-run counter-extremism programs and its relationship with the traditional far-right. You can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, Soundcloud, Blueberry and Spotify and you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter the handle, as always, is at Poll Theory Other. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. And if you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Poll Theory Other. Hilary Arkhead is a freelance writer and researcher, currently writing a book about the Zionist movement in the UK and Israel's response to the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. They hold a PhD in political sociology from the University of Bath and previously co-authored the Britain-Israel Communications and Research Centre, Giving Peace a Chance, published by Public Interest Investigations, and also the Henry Jackson Society and the Degeneration of British Neoconservatism. Our conversation was prompted by a new report also from Public Interest Investigations, co-authored by Hillary, as well as Melissa Jones and David Miller. The report is entitled Islamophobia in Europe, How Governments Are Enabling the Far-Right Counter-Jihad Movement, and you can find a link to the report in the description of today's show. I began the interview by asking Hillary what the counter-jihad movement is and how it differs from the traditional far-right. The counter-jihad movement is a specific uh, strand of the far right, quite closely connected to the alt-right, but distinct and, and identifiable because of its sort of the particular form of cultural racism that it espouses. It's self-identified, by the way, it, using the term counter-jihad. So it's held, since I think 2007, it's held an annual counter-jihad conference. There's a kind of quite big blogosphere out there which uses, you know, the term counter-jihad and there are films and books um, and, and, a, and a strong grassroots movement um, as well as, you know, politicians who are sympathetic to and allied with the movement. And, and the particular form of kind of cultural racism it espouses um, is especially targeting um, Muslims and migrants. And it can be kind of distinguished from older forms of fascism um, by its kind of claim to not be anti-Semitic. And actually, it certainly does idolise Israel, although more for the fact that it's a kind of highly militarised um, authoritarian state than for the fact that it's kind of a movement which genuinely rejects anti-Semitism. And I, and I suppose also a state that's, at, you know, at war with Hamas and Hezbollah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Israel is sort of seen as the front line of this clash of civilizations between the West and the Islamic world. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, the counter-jihad movement, as, as the name suggests, takes its cue from the war on terror, but it didn't. It didn't kind of emerge straight after 9/11. Around 2007, as I mentioned, is when the first counter-jihad conference takes place. So there's a few years in between in which, um, you know, our report essentially argues that the government, Western government's response to uh, incidents like 9/11 and 7/7, and and the war on terror actually kind of create uh, the counter-jihad movement as as a grassroots product of the war on terror. But its main sort of preoccupations are um, what it calls Islamization or Islamification. Um, so you can see in that kind of phrase that the, the, the marriage of this fear of Islam and this fear of immigration. So there's, you know, a, a classic kind of counter-jihad conspiracy theory book is um, is Eurabia by um, Bat Yeor. And this talks about, um, it's, it's essentially like a fear of demographic change um they, they they often use the phrase because jihad obviously um in, in in arabic means um struggling or striving it has religious connotations it's not synonymous with political violence um obviously in the mind of the counter jihad, jihad movement it is but it goes beyond that so they use phrases like demographic jihad uh, welfare jihad like even rape jihad um to kind of describe any any kind of um public involvement of Muslim communities in public life, essentially. Um, And it mixes in quite interesting ways, like Crusader-era imagery and, um, you know, draws on the names of battles um, for some of its its kind of blogs and things like that, with more contemporary uh, far-right, you know, imagery. Yeah, I mean, that's it's interesting, that, isn't it, I suppose, because I guess we we always think of the far right in terms of uh, di- sort of distinct nationalisms, but there is a sort of civilizational and sort of pan-European quality to the counter-jihad movement. Yeah, it's one of the kind of paradoxes that p- people have written about, that obviously um, we associate the far right with uh, nationalist politics, um, which poses a problem for... Um, transnational organizing, but the counter-jihad movement has gone quite a long way in overcoming that barrier by using Islamophobia as as a kind of common ground for macro-nationalist politics. Um, I think it was what Farid Hafez calls it. And so it's, it unites these different groups, both in kind of the far right in the European Parliament and at the grassroots. So you have movements like, you know, the EDL, the English Defence League, spawning copycats across Europe, the same with um, Pegida, which begins in Germany. You have copycat movements across Europe. Um, and uh, Stop the Islamization uh, movement also spreads um, and it has this kind of mimetic quality. So actually it has been able to be nationalist uh, and yet um, transcend national boundaries. Would you say that that is a reflection of its drawing upon the discourse of the war on terror? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you said, there's there's this um, there's a kind of um, binary Manichaean narrative in the war on or one terror that presents a, a clash of civilizations between um, the West or what's or what's often called in the kind of Jihad movement, you know, Judeo-Christian heritage. Um, you know, which is also paradoxical, ignoring you know the long history of uh, of persecution of Jews in in Christian Europe. But now we have this thing called Judeo-Christian heritage, and its counterpoint is um, the Islamic world. 
So on on the question of Islamophobia, so in the report you provide a particular definition of of Islamophobia as a a form of racism. Could you just briefly explain what that um, definition is? Yeah, um, we define, um, I haven't got the the definition to hand here, but we define um, Islamophobia as a form of racism, essentially, which um, articulates fear, you know, hatred or hostility towards Muslim or Islam or those perceived to be Muslim. Um, and it can be both, you know, verbal abuse, uh, physical abuse um, at an individual street-based level, but also more importantly, kind of, um, or often neglected, structural uh, racism, uh, state policies um, that discriminate against Muslims. And I'm sort of tired of having this argument because, it, you know, it has been going on for a long time now. But the classic, like, Islam is not a race, cannot, you know, we explained in the report that um, this is sort of racialization theory 101, that you people are either being, you know, genuinely ignorant of or willfully ignoring when they when they kind of deploy that argument. You know, I'm sure your listeners don't need being told about this, but there's no uh, objective um, biological way to draw discrete categories around humans, race is a social construct. And in much the same way that Jewish people were raised by their experience of, um, you know, racist discrimination, and thus a a kind of religious group, which consists of very diverse ethnicities, um, essentially became a race through that experience. The same thing uh, is and has been happening to Muslims. So just in in the same way that skin colour can act as a signifier, um, you know, signifiers of of, uh, allegiance to Islam, whether that's wearing the veil or attending prayers at mosque, you know, they work in the same ways. Um, So it is a form of of racism. And I think that the semantic quibbling about whether it's a a phobia or not, or or whether we should say anti-Muslim racism is, is not very helpful. In fact, it's it's kind of unforgivable when we have, we have, uh, you know, very recently, um, the Christchurch massacre, um, and, um, you know, back in 2011, another one of the most significant mass murders associated with the counter-jihad movement was Anders Bering Breivik's attack in 2011 um, in Utoya. You know, he didn't target Muslims, but he targeted young people in the um, the left kind of Labour Party in Norway because he deemed them, uh, that party, responsible for allowing this, you know, so-called demographic jihad, for allowing immigration of Muslims and demographic change in the country. So I don't think, I mean, I, it's the same when people argue that um, oh, they can't be anti-Semitic if they're Palestinian, because Semite, Palestinians are Semites as well. It's it's really unhelpful, I think. We, we, we know what it means. It's a functional term, and um, it certainly is a form of a form of racism, yeah. So I wonder if that, you know, that, that claim that is made that um, that Islamophobia can't be racism because Islam is not a race. Do you think perhaps the traction that that argument can make is something to do with liberal identitarian forms of anti-racism, which also in a very different way tend to see race as quite fixed categories rather than sort of social creations? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's something in that. Um, some, you know, there's a there, there's a real paucity of there's dearth of understanding about what racism is. Um, and on on the one hand, that's expressed by people believing that uh, all it is is you know people who hold a genuine you know hatred or dislike in their hearts for you know for others, um, rather than recognizing the the kind of the structural qualities of racism uh, and white supremacy. But also a lot of some, uh, even some anti-racist arguments 
still um, still reify race as a category and don't kind of break down break that break that down and and um, you know make us think about what's underlying that that assumption. So um, they yeah they 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 kind of reinforce those identitarian categories. Um, so yeah, I think there is something in that. So. In terms of the kind of sort of self-justifying position of the counter-jihad movement, but also counter-extremism on the part of Western governments, so this is all sort of justified in terms of Islamist terrorist groups posing a particular and unusual threat in, in, in Western Europe and, and the United States. Could you just say something on the scale of the threat from Islamist terror groups and to what extent that the threat is exaggerated? Yes, yeah, so... I mean, according to Europol, the figures we quote in the report uh, indicate that a very small percentage of of kind of incidents of political violence that are classified as terrorist attacks, um, including those that which fail or are foiled, but also those which are successful, by um, you know so-called Islamist actors. So between 2006 to 2014, it's actually less than one percent. And in 2015 and 16, respectively, it rises to 8 and 9%. Um, and it rises again in 2017 to 16%. Even then, you can see less than one in five um, you know, incidents of political violence is attributed to Islamist actors. So I would say you know, there is a lot of exaggeration going on here. There is a hyperbolic reaction in political elites and media circles. Um, the 2018 Europol terrorism situation and trend report makes it very clear that, um, you know, Islamist attacks uh, are far outnumbered by ethno-nationalist and separatist terrorist attacks, which constitute uh, 67% of, uh, of attacks inspired by, um, compared to, to other, uh, other ideologies. Now, that said, it is true to say that the number of casualties attributable to um, Islamist attacks is increasing. And obviously, that's, that's part of the aim of such of such acts. Nonetheless, like I think it's, you know, we mentioned in the report that like usually the biggest impact of non-state terrorist violence um, is not the act itself, but the response from the state. So how governments and society, you know, understand and interpret and explain that political violence to which it's been subjected. Uh, and over the long term, you know, those ex- explanations determine the strategies and tactics used to um, try to prevent future attacks. So, you know, in the case of the UK, despite that, that like, uh, Islamist attacks um, representing a really small fraction of political violence, we've got uh, a sprawling surveillance regime and a very kind of deeply ingrained counter-extremism apparatus that's fostered, you know, as well, a kind of a a cottage industry of um, private counter-extremism Providers. So ever since ever since the um, Counterterrorism and Security Act 2015 made the prevent policy a statutory duty for everyone in the public sector to to have due regard to prevent people being drawn into terrorism using this this language of of safeguarding. Thousands upon thousands of people have been trained um, to spot the so-called signs of radicalization, creating this 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 climate of paranoia and. There's been a, a quite a lot of fanfare recently in the wake of events like the Christchurch attack um, by people saying, advocates of prevent saying, oh, well, no, no, we've we become much more even handed. There's 50 percent referrals of channel to channel, which is part of prevent, are actually far right referrals and only 50 percent are 
about Islamists, but if you think about the proportion of the population which is white and which is uh, Muslim, that's still grossly disproportionate. Um, and also, I think that like those figures on the actual frequency of Islamist terrorism raises you know wider questions about how we categorize different types of violence. So I think Aaron Kanani in his book, The Muslims Are Coming, raises the question of whether hate crime and even uh, domestic abuse should not be classified as political violence since, you know, underlying those those violent acts are political motives, i.e. racism, white supremacy, and misogyny. But obviously those political ideas are less threatening to the state. Even if we don't classify them as terrorism, you know, we still need to ask questions about the amount of money in the age of austerity that's being poured into this to, to policies like Prevent um, and programs like Prevent, which are not only discriminatory, but also ineffective at presenting, preventing political violence um, and the amount of money that that takes away from the NHS, uh, air pollution, other things which are more fundamental to social welfare and, and, and to conducive to human, you know, um, maintaining human life and, and actually affecting many more lives. Regarding that sort of comparative disregard for certain forms of, of violence, I mean, you mentioned that there are forms of violence which are not uh, threatening to the state and that they, they don't you know, target the, the, the overthrow of, of a particular state or even seek to um, go to war with it. Does that partially explain the relative tolerance that you see towards the counter-jihad movement on the parts of, of uh, Western governments and, and as well also to, to parts of the more sort of traditional far right? Yes, I think it does. Um, there's a real complacency um, when, you, when you examine um, kind of Western governments' ca- uh, counter-extremism policies and their attitude towards the far right. I mean, we studied the UK, France and Germany, and there are differences. Um, for example, in Germany, because of its history, I think there is more emphasis placed on the far right. But even then, the counter-jihad movement, the kind of Islamophobic, more Islamophobic wing of the far right is neglected in favour of more recognisable, long-standing neo-Nazi actors. And even then, the response is very poor. So you had the National Socialist Underground murders, you know, it took years for, um, you know, the, the German police to, to kind of to kind of pay proper attention to even. And a large part of that is because the far right is not fundamentally always opposed to the state. Actually, a lot of its violence can be called pro-state violence. You know, there are... There are currents of it which talk about the need for violent um, civil war, but um, ultimately that's um, less revolutionary in character and more about defending kind of national identity against ethnic minorities. So, um, you know, again, Aaron Kanani points out that the result is that they're seen as more as a, a public order threat rather than a strategic threat to government. And that that explains that explains to a large extent why governments are not as concerned. I mean, also there's there's just as we tried to show in the report, significant overlaps in the underlying assumptions in, in the politics that um, counter jihad actors adopt and governments are increasingly adopting. So you know, it, it, it's kind of structurally difficult for. Uh, a government's counter-extremism policy to counter a politics which it itself espouses. Um, and I suppose on on the, the counter-jihad side of it, it's it's almost as if they sort of conceive of themselves as, as keeping the government honest and merely trying to get governments to take seriously their own rhetoric around the war on terror. 
Yeah, absolutely. They're, um, they see themselves, I suppose, as, you know, when David Cameron talked about the need to drain the swamp of extremism, they sort of see themselves as the foot soldiers of that drive. You know, they're the swamp drainers. And they would, well, they, you know, would and have welcomed the direction in which many governments have moved in, in, in the last decade or so with regard to both immigration policy and um, counter-extremism, increasingly authoritarian counter-extremism policies. Uh, they just want to see them harden even further, right? They believe that governments are naive and need to wake up to the, the imminent threat of, of Islamization and um, Islam taking over Europe. But, but you know, so, and you saw this in um, the manifesto of Brendan Tarrant, the um, New Zealand killer. So he was, he named his manifesto the Great Replacement, which um, which is an idea popularized by Renaud Camus, who's a, a French kind of neo-fascist thinker, one of the nouveau reactionnaires. And that idea, um, you know, is is not something the government espouse openly, but it underlies some of the people who inform policies like Prevent, share some of that worldview, share some of that concern about demographic change, what it's doing to a society, and that those ideas underline some of the kind of policies associated with, with Fortress Europe and, of course, with Brexit. So, the, you know, the, there are overlaps there, definitely. One of the interesting things in the, in the report is, um, uh, obviously, when we think of radicalisation, we, you know, we tend to think about people on, on the margins of society to some extent. But the report also talks about the radicalisation of, of mainstream figures and people who are giving succour to the, the counter-jihad movement and to Islamophobia more generally. Could you, could you talk briefly about that and how the, the sort of the direction of travel is not always um, in, in one way, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, what we try to draw attention to was the fact that you often hear the phrase, um, oh, you know, mainstreaming of far-right ideas, as if the state is this neutral actor, and unfortunately sometimes far-right ideas creep into the mainstream and are voiced by um, politicians or creep into government policy or come into the media. But actually... Um, what we sort to argue that actually there's a kind of more of a, a symbiotic relationship between mainstream actors and the far right, and they can reinforce each other, and that the uh, the mainstream counter-extremism policies which Western governments, such as the UK, espouse, actually can provide fodder for the far right to borrow. So especially in Germany and the UK, we found evidence that there are actors we would classify according to the kind of definition I gave earlier as counter-jihad actors who actually describe themselves as counter-extremists and they use the rhetoric of counter-extremism and they say, you know, we're against uh, counter-extremism on the left and the right. And when they say right, they mean neo-Nazis, so they distinguish themselves in that way. And so what we, and what we spoke about, and even in France where that trend was less pronounced, there's, there's a radicalization of the state, right? There was a, a state of emergency by the government for, for over two years. Um, and the public mood and government policies hardened and policies which could have been seen as, you know, outside of the mainstream and became more mainstream. You know, the cordon sanitaire that used to keep the Front National, which has since been renamed National Rally, um, has, has really broken down. And so... 
It's not just a one-way process where, you know, the, the fire idea, ideas creep in. It goes both ways. And what you're seeing is, is a sort of convergence, we would argue, between um, states which are increasingly moving right and being dragged to the right by, by the counter-jihad movement and other far actors and a kind of respectability politics uh, and being deployed by the far right and, and this them deploying this rhetoric of their counter-extremists, that they're, you know, the mainstream, reasonable, respectable um, actors who are seeking to safeguard so-called Western values and liberal values. Hmm. Um, in the UK, I mean, how would you want to, in relation to the counter-jihad movement, how would you want to situate organisations and parties? I mean, I'm thinking of things like UKIP and even the, the, the right wing of the Conservative Party, the, the ERG. I mean, obviously, recently we had David Lammy, the Labour MP, going on the Andrew Marr show and, and um, uh, calling out Jacob Rees-Mogg for sharing a, a tweet from the, um, the far-right alternative for, for Deutschland uh, party and, and comparing the ERG to, to fascists more generally. Um What's your view on on those uh, sorts of organisations and and groupings? Yeah, I mean the the boundaries between these different currents are not uh, are not discrete, and I wouldn't say that the ERG are you know they they would not be classified really as part of the counter jihad movement, but certainly they are you know increasingly hard right, and for Jacob Rees-Mogg to be you know amplifying the AFD is um, that you know that they're a far right party, but it's not something alien to the Conservative Party to be doing something like that. I mean, before they, you know, grew to prominence and grew in stature and power in Germany, um, a few years ago, David Cameron allowed the AFD to sit, you know, in his block in the in the European Parliament. And they were, you know, later expelled from that group. But, um, you know, it helped in their early years, it helped them to kind of maintain the degree of respectability. Um, and we see that pattern, you know, over and over again with, counter-jihad actors like, you know, small, insignificant groups like uh, Sharia Watch, which was set up by Anne-Marie Waters, I don't think it even exists anymore, um, Stand for Peace, um, who are, you know, both groups which use the rhetoric of counter-extremism, but were actually violently, uh, well, was, was certainly Islamophobic, both spoke in the House of Lords because, um, you know, again, I talked about like you know radicalism at the heart of political elite. People like Baroness Cox in this country and Lord Pearson provide a platform for those actors, and that provides these kind of veneer of legitimacy, which is extremely um, dangerous. In terms of UKIP, you know, Nigel Farage achieved quite a lot in terms of his quest to sanitize UKIP to some extent, in the same way that. Uh, Marine Le Pen has done in France with um, the Front National and National Rally. It seems like Jared Batten has, uh, you know, rolled that back a lot. So you can see their true colours emerge again. I mean, he's appointed Tommy Robinson, uh, Stephen Yaxley-Lennon, a.k.a. Tommy Robinson, as an advisor. Batten himself has a very strong connections to the counter-jihad movement. Um, he's been to several conferences and spoken alongside key counter-jihad ideologues as has Lord Pearson, by the way. So there's a very strong current of, of counter-jihadism, but also uh, it seems like UKIP are increasingly allowing um, all elements of the far right to join, despite their, um, you know, their previous quest to try to, to sanitise, you know, the, their party. Um, but I think more interesting or probably perhaps more illustrative in the UK are the kind of the nexus between Tommy Robinson and Quilliam Foundation, right? So Quilliam Foundation is 
ostensibly a counter-extremism organisation which received like over three million pounds of funding from the British government for years. Um, its funding dries up and one of the things it tries to do um, to um, curry favour again with British officials is to say that it's you know not only working on um, targeting Islamist extremism but also targeting the far right. So it hosts, um, you know, a press conference with Tommy Robinson says he's leaving the English Defence League, right, which he founded. And they asked, on the same day, they asked the Department for Communities and Local Government for some funding to facilitate his um, his supposed um, de-radicalisation. And in reality, of course, he's not changed his views. Soon after that, he founds um, the Pegida UK movement with other counter-jihad activists. But it shows you there the, the kind of um, the shallow understanding of, of far-right politics and racism that so-called counter-extremist actors have, their willingness to associate with them, to empower them, to share a platform with them. In fact, Quilliam were funding Tommy Robinson. And, 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 and Majid Nawaz from Quilliam even applied to the, uh, DCLG for funding to take Tommy Robinson into schools. Um, to, to, let, to, to supposedly as an example um, of, uh, you know, someone who has renounced extremism in the same way Majid Nawaz tells his own story as someone who renounced extremism. In the case of Robinson and, and Quilliam, is, you know, is it a sort of a case of, of Quilliam being deceived or is it, or is it simply that if somebody is positioning themselves as counter-jihadist in their, in their politics rather than the more traditional far right, that in their minds that means you're not an extremist? I think it, it tells us something about the similarities between what passes for counter-extremism and what passes for counter-jihadism, yes. Um, you know, Tommy Robinson himself, I think in his autobiography, writes that the reason he teamed up with Quilliam briefly was because he realised their views were similar. You know, both emphasise, um, you know, Islamism as the, the preeminent threat and claim to uh, reject forms of racism and to want to work with, uh, you know, so-called moderate Muslims. So I don't think it's a question of Quilliam being deceived, uh, although I assume they asked for some kind of assurances that he wouldn't, you know, go back to the EDL, whether they were, were, were at all bothered, whether he would go and found a Pegida movement, I don't know. I think that partnership, you know, broke down. But it, it tells us something important about the the common politics of these things. And, and it's really hard to tell which is which after a while because the Quilliam Foundation have also signed on to open letters with a far-right Islamophobic US-based think tank called the Gatestone Institute. Um, so as well as, um, you know, so-called counter-extremism making common cause with Islamophobic think tanks, you have counter-jihad actors saying that they're counter-extremists and deploying that rhetoric. So the boundaries are just are just very blurred. And I think that um, tells us um, about, you know, the problems with so-called counter-extremism as a, as a concept. In terms of the strategy of, of trying to present themselves as, as non-extremists by d- differentiating themselves from the far right, we've already touched on this a little bit, but... Um, in terms of portraying themselves as being as being not anti-Semitic, partly through this quite sort of um, performative attachment to Israel that they sort of show, in recent years we've seen as, as an increase in not just the counter-jihad movement but also the traditional far right, and we've seen an increase in anti-Semitism in in, in Europe. Do you think we might see a more classically anti-Semitic turn on the, on the part of the counter-jihad movement? Or would that just be sort of too dangerous to um, their self-portrayal as these sort of, uh, you know, common sense, anti-PC moderates? 
I mean, it's it's an interesting question. It's an important question, and it's it's a difficult one to answer. Um, I think it's definitely true to say that the social stigma of anti-Semitism has been eroded by by the rise of the far right by by Trump, and that that has emboldened elements of the far right to kind of re-embrace it, which had perhaps de-emphasized it in their in their um, rhetoric. I think you're right that the respectability politics that still Kamsi Head is trying to um, engage in would encourage it to um, continue to deny that it's anti-Semitism, but it it pierces through and the kind of veil drops a lot of time anyway. I mean, in the case of Pegida founder Lutz Backman, he was a few years ago, he was some photographs emerged of him posing with a a sort of Hitler moustache in a photo and he had to quit the movement briefly only to come back saying that this was um, the Lugan press, the lying press, you know, echoes of of kind of Trump's fake news kind of arguments there. But, um, you know, I think in terms of their fealty to Israel, anti-Semitism isn't a barrier for Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, to make make alliances with um, certain European leaders who are um, who come from, you know, parties with a long history of anti-Semitism. So I don't think it need necessarily be something that the counter-jihad movement continues to be estranged from. Ultimately, the, these these far ideas are intermingled in the case of someone like Thomas Mayer, who killed um, the MP Joe Cox. You know, he had a lot of neo-Nazi literature, um, but he also was uh, involved, I believe, in um, Britain First, which is more of a counter-jihad group. So these ideas are, are, are not separate. And ultimately, once you open the door to one form of racism, you're going to open the door to others. And, you know, but even if it, it, it continues to de-emphasize anti-Semitism, I think that the levels of Islamophobia are dangerous enough in themselves to merit serious attention. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.